All right, Mark chapter 1. We're going to start now the, the gospel of Mark. And um, we are going to, what's that? What? 51. So, we're, uh, so the book of Mark here, we come to the gospel of Mark. And uh, we are um, going to just kind of introduce it this week and next week. And then uh, we'll be off for two weeks and then we'll be back in May when we come back. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. But I just want to introduce it. There's, uh, Mark has 16 chapters, 678 verses, 15,771 words. So not a small book, but not a big book when you compare to uh, Matthew and Luke and John. But when you talk about Mark and you begin to talk about uh, what, what, as we go through it and just kind of this evening get an idea of uh, what's going to be in the book, you quickly begin to realize that Mark is actually going to be one of the bigger books of the Gospels when you kind of begin to kind of pull out. Um, Matthew has a lot of discourse. Pull that out. Matthew just shrunk. <laughs> Luke has a lot of discourse information and details pull shrink that out now mark is actually a, a bigger book mark is the second of the four gospels we'll see as we go along here why it's number two why it's matthew mark luke and john and uh, we will see that um, that as we go through there um, mark uh, the the writer of mark is genuinely you normally taught to be John Mark. Uh, John is his Jewish name. Mark is the Latin name. Uh, John means Jehovah is gracious, where Mark means the hammer. So Jehovah is grace, gracious, uh, and, that if, and if that doesn't work out, then he'll be the hammer. <laughs> so uh, that, it's an interesting thing, but Mark is... Uh, a gospel that is normally overlooked, genuinely overlooked. And it's one of the least studied of the gospels. And it's actually the least, it's the most underrated. And yet it really is a very fascinating book um, and a fascinating gospel. Uh, it's, it, when you come to commentaries, uh, if, you, if you look here at verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness. Uh, and preach the baptism of repentance for the remissions of sin. You see that, the ministry of John the Baptist, verse 9, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John and Jordan. So you got the baptism of Jordan, verse 12, and immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. So you have the temptation. Most commentaries, every one that I pulled off my shelf, looked at a few other ones online that I could find, all of them, when you go through those three issues the ministry of john the baptist the baptism of john and then the temptation all say see what we wrote about matthew mark and matthew luke and john they never address it here and it's too bad because as we go through it you literally begin to see a side of things that matthew doesn't present luke doesn't present but yet john does so there's going to be uh, a, a, a great deal of information um, that we will, know, we will notice that we saw in our study in Matthew and in Luke and in John. Now, I didn't on purpose study Mark last. It just kind of worked that way because in the four Gospels, Matthew and Mark go together and Luke and John go together. We'll see that as we go through and introduce this, more, this uh, book to us and everything. So... The reason that Mark is so often overlooked and so often underrated or undertaught is that it does not have the great discourses of, of the Lord in different places. Mark is the chronological account of the life of Christ. Mark, he, he lays out the chronology and, it's, and, it, and, it, and he does it because it's and then he did this, then he did this, and he did this. There's no discourse about, well, this is what 
you know, Matthew presents the Lord as king, this is what he says. None of that is in Mark. Matthew and Luke and John are all arguments. They're, they're not designed to be chronological. They have an argument to present and evidence to back that argument up. If you think about Matthew, we just got done studying Matthew. Matthew presents the Lord as the king. So what does Matthew 1.1 say? Well, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So now we have Matthew 1, we have the genealogy that traces him all the way back to Abraham and David, the great Abrahamic covenant, and the king. Matthew 2, we have John the Baptist preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 3, you've got, that, you've got Jesus Christ preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Our, our Matthew 2, you have him born king of the Jews and the wise men come. That's who's in Matthew 2. Matthew 3, you've got John the Baptist, gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Lord sits in the Mount of Olives and he gives the discourse and he gives the, what the citizens of the kingdom are going to look like. You go to Matthew 8, he comes down off the mountain and then he begins to demonstrate the credentials that he has as king. And so you got this, you know, we got eight chapters and Mark covers those in like three verses because he's not interested in the detail. Luke, Matthew groups things together and we saw that to make his argument to give the best evidence. Luke does the same thing. Luke says, here's this group of things, boom. And when we were studying Luke, which has been, feels like 30 years ago, <laughs> a long time ago, we spent four or five, almost five years in Luke on purpose. But when you get into Luke 8, 9, 10, where he starts talking about demon, casting out the demons and everything and the devils and all that, he groups all that together, gives you all the detail. John, John, we studied John. That's written mainly around eight miracles. That's the whole of John. And again, John is demonstrating him to be the son of God. Luke demonstrating to him to be the man. So Matthew, Luke, and John are all argumentative basis in their writing. Mark is not. Mark gives a chronological account. Here's the basic history of the life of Christ right here. And it's going to be here. Mark is that boom, boom, boom. He just, it's boom, boom, boom. Here it is, bam, here it is there. And again, it's, he's not leaving, he, he's not interested in a lot of different uh, discourses and ev extra evidence. And uh, it's important to understand that and to see that because of, of the position Mark is. It's Matthew, Mark. And that's going to be very critical in how important Mark is to Matthew. So we have the four Gospels, and we, always, we did this with Luke and John and Matthew, so we'll do it again here this evening. Just really, I know as I look here, you guys understand those four branch statements and behold statements, but we do have people online and on the Internet that will be looking at this. There are four Gospels, not one. Okay, th th these four Gospels, uh, they're answering the fourfold prophetic picture, portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody asked me one time, well, why can't there just be one? Well, if God wanted one Gospel to be the issue, he would have written one Gospel. He, that's not the case. You, ha you have the four branch statements. that are going to match up to the four behold statements, that are going to match up to the four faces that are there on, in the throne room on the cherubs. And when you begin to remember this and remind ourselves of this, then as we get into Mark, we're going to go, okay, there's a reason why. Why is there no genealogy in Mark? Because nobody cares what the servant came from. What do you when you're going to hire a worker? What do you what do you want to see? References. You want to you want to call references and say, hey, what kind of a worker was he, or she? 
I want your I want your your resume. I don't care where you came from, or so I want to know. So what's going to happen is, and we'll say this now, so I don't forget to say it later. Matthew presents him as the king. Here's what the king says. Mark is going to come up and present him in the picture of the servant. But here's what the king does. And what he's doing in Mark is going to demonstrate that what he's, who he said he was is who he really is. Because as a king, he says, I am, king of the, I am the king. I am. Mark comes in and says, you see what he's doing? He is the king. So there's a reason for that. Luke pictures the Lord as man. John pictures the Lord as the God-man. So here's his humanity, and here's his deity, and they're in one person. So come over with me to Jeremiah 23, just really way of reminder as we go through this, because we're going to see some things in Mark uh, as we go that this fourfold portrait picture is going to need to be there, otherwise we're going to have some confusion. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, that I will rise unto David, raise unto David a righteous branch and a king. So the first branch is a king. A king's gonna shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Notice that carefully there. Behold the branch, the capital B, the proper name here, a title, the branch. Come over with me to uh, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3 and verse 8. Zechariah 3 and verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sitteth before thee, for they are men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the what? The branch. So you've got a servant in that verse, but then he also notice how he says, behold, I will bring forth. So now we have a behold statement about the servant as well. Behold the branch. By the way, with the king one, we just saw what? Behold, the, the king, the righteous king. Come over. Well, you're in, Je you're in Zechariah 3. Come over to chapter 6, Zechariah 6 and verse 12. Zechariah 6, verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the who? The man... Whoops. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Again, behold the man. They're matching up here. Chapter 9 of Zechariah. Chapter 9, verse number 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold thy king so we have a mat we're matching now come over to isaiah isaiah 4 isaiah 4 and verse 2 isaiah 4 verse 2 isaiah 4 2 in that day shall the branch of the lord there he is Come over to chapter 40, Isaiah 40. Who is the Lord? Well, he's God. Isaiah 40 and verse number 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice, which with strength lift it up. Be not afraid, say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So you've got this great statement here, this portrait, this picture being painted of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, we've got Matthew 
He presents the Lord as the king. Matthew. We're in Mark. It's going to picture the servant. Luke is going to do the man. And John is going to picture him as who he is, the son of God. And again, no genealogy in Matthew, I mean, I mean in Mark, because no one is really concerned. But in Matthew, we need to know that he is king, he's in the right line. We need to know that he has the rights to the throne. So what is he? Son of David, son of Abraham. Those two great components of the Abrahamic covenant, he matches. Luke, so by the way, Matthew goes back to Abraham in his genealogy. In Luke's genealogy in chapter 3, he doesn't go back to Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam. So he goes back to the first man because what does he have to prove? That he can be the kinsman redeemer. He's man. John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That genealogy goes back all the way to eternity. So you've got all of the components, and again, in Matt and Mark, we don't really concerned with who the servant came from and all that. We just want to know that he can work. Come over with me to Revelation 4. Uh, actually, you're in Isaiah, right? Look, look at Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel 1, and then we're going to get Revelation 4. Ezekiel 1. There are four faces. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel, uh, he's going to be verse 5. Also, out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the, the likeness of a man. Then in verse uh, 7, there was a, the... Uh, verse 10, there we go, that's the verse I was looking for. As for the likeness of their faces, they, had, they four had the face of a man, the face of a lion. They four had the face of an ox. And the left side, the house, the four had the face of an eagle. You go over to chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Chapter 10, verse number 15 and the cherubims were lifted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river Chabar. So he's looking at the cherubs, okay? And in verse 14, there you've got the four faces again. The, the, the man, the lion, the, the um, ox, and uh, the eagle. So when, but come to Revelation 4. So the cherubs, they have a function in Scripture... That is, pertain, that is in the issue of protecting and defending the holiness of God. The first time you see a cherub in scriptures, Genesis 3, when, he, when the Lord kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden and he sets a cherub to guard the way to the tree of life. So that's the, that's the, these, are the these are the closest creatures to the throne of God. The throne of God, they, they're going to be four of them sitting on the corners. Now, there's a fifth cherub that covereth, that's Lucifer. He's fallen, but we've got four corners, and they're going to sit there. Now, look in Revelation 4. The reason Revelation 4 is so important is because it sets the order of, of these. It's going to set the order of, and then we're going to see it really is setting the order of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at 4.6. Revelation 4.6. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was, a, was the lion. The second was that of the ox. The third is the man. And the fourth is the eagle. Now, we know that the king of the jungle is the lion, the ox, the servant. Uh, I believe he calls him the calf there, okay? And, and there's a reason we just don't have the time to get into it. Then you have man and the eagle, the high soaring uh, of, uh, of, the, of the birds and so forth. 
Now, it, the order here is different than in Ezekiel. We just looked at it. But here, we're in the throne. you got to think about where we're at in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. We're in the throne room of the Father, and he's about to give the authority to rule and reign the universe to his Son. If you look down at verse 9 of chapter 5, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood, I'm sorry, by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That sums up what... what has been fulfilled because of Calvary. So in Revelation, he's looking back at Calvary, saying this is what's been fulfilled. In Ezekiel, he's looking forward, has no clue about what's, what it all means yet. So it's a jumbled up deal. But in Revelation, he says, Matthew and Mark, Luke and John. And these go together in this order. So the order is important. That's when we're looking at Revelation 4, okay? Matthew, if you think about this, Matthew ends with the re resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the coming of the Holy Spirit. And John ends with the description of the Lord's second coming. So the order is it critical because of the design? We got resurrection, ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then the second coming. So it's, it's critical that way. Um, again, by the way, go back to Zechariah 9. We, if you think about this, Zechariah 9, where we were just at here, and in verse 9, I didn't finish reading the verse, so these have been put together in a very, the, the Gospels have been put together in a very specific spiritual design in a, in a way to, to accomplish an understanding in the people who have an ear to hear and an eye to see what's going on. So that's why this kind of introducing Mark here is kind of fun because he's fitting the pattern. Zechariah 9, look at verse 9. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So the king is coming, right? He is just and having salvation, but yet lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the fall of an ass. You see, he's coming, but how is he coming? Not to rule and reign, but to serve, to give his life. So Zechariah 9, describing Matthew as the king is coming, but how's he coming? As a servant. He's coming to give his life. So these two become together. Mark, the, the focus of Mark is that issue of look at what the servant would, would do. Here's how the servant is doing Here's how that activity is flowing. And Matthew, hey, the king's here. Mark, the king's in here. And Mark says, yep, he's the king, because look at what he did. Luke and John, he's the man. Yep, but he is also the son of God. And as we go through that, we'll see this. Now, the standard way that Mark gets taught, so if it's the standard way, we know we're going to have problems, right? Usually, when they, people come to the Gospels, and you go to college, and you get a DDD, and an MDD, and an MDDTHD, and all that good stuff, is that they will say that Matthew was written for Israel, Mark was written for the Romans, Luke was written for the Gentiles, and John was written for the church, the body of Christ. 
well, we know we had a problem with John because they knew nothing of the m message given to Paul in the church, the body of Christ. But when you think about Mark and why they would say it was written for the Romans, that comes from a lack of understanding of why and what's going on, I should say, within the nation of Israel at the time. Think about this. Matthew has just demonstrated that he's the king. He's, Matthew is going to tell us what Jesus said, what he teaches, what he's accomplishing. Matthew is written for the religious mindset. Over and over again, we would see things about where, where Matthew would say, this happened, so it would be, what, so what was written is fulfilled. So it's written for, for the religious mindset. Luke is written with the Gentile in mind. When we studied Luke, I got some flack from some, because Luke, is, by the way, the Colossians 4, if we get over there tonight, Luke is listed in the Gentile list, not the circumcision list in, in Colossians 4. So, and by the way, the four, the, the Mark is not one of the apostles, nor is, John, nor is Matthew, nor was Luke. And then if you're going to argue about who wrote John, that would be okay. But so when you think about Luke, Luke is writing from the viewpoint of, yes, he is Israel's Messiah. Yes, he's accomplishing things, but he's also doing it for the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles are looking for what? Israel to give them the blessing. Because what does the Abrahamic covenant say? Through you are going to the blessings that are going to go to the families of the earth. So Israel is the, it's coming through Israel. Come over to Luke. Just, you got to notice that. Look at Luke 2. Look, look at Luke 2. Because there's something very interesting here. You see, Luke says, yes, he is Israel's Messiah. Yes, he will save his people. But he has salvation for the Gentiles through the Abrahamic covenant in, on, in his mind as well. Look at Luke 2. If you start there in verse 8, about the shepherds abiding in the field. Okay. Oh, it's not the verse I was looking for. Well, look at verse 10. The angel said unto them, Fear not. No, that's not the verse I was looking for. Oh, no, it's chapter 3. My bad. I'm sorry. Chapter 3. You have the ministry of, the Holy, uh, of John the Baptist in verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark, Matthew, Mark, and John only quote to that part the stop. Luke goes on with the quote, Every mountain shall be filled, every... Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. See, Luke goes on with the quote out of Malachi, see, and Isaiah there. So, and he says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh is all flesh. But what's Luke doing? Luke says, he is Israel's Messiah, but he's also got the Gentiles on his mind because that's the ultimate goal of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, John comes in and he says, yes, he's Messiah, but guess what? He's God. And John, they say John's written for the church, and you hear wacky ideas about John is a great evangelistic book to read and so forth. When nine of the 21 chapters, a third of the book, is written to the apostles in the upper room. It doesn't make sense. Any of that doesn't either. It's written to the little flock, the believing remnant. And again, in John 1, the goal of that passage, the goal of the whole of the, of the book of John is any verse 11 and 12. He came into his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, gave he them the power to become 
the sons of God, that little flock, he gave them power. Now when you come into Mark, Mark, Matthew says, here's the king. Mark validates that claim. Mark comes in now, and not written to the Romans, but rather Mark comes in and validates that he is the king by what he's going to do. And Mark is written, Mark sits right after Matthew. It's written specifically, it's placed specifically with that suffering servant of Jehovah in mind. That little flock is going to go into the tribulation. They will be dispersed out amongst the Gentiles, Acts 8, 1. They're gone, they're out. And when that happens, that scattered little remnant is under the heel of the Gentiles. So Mark's, when they say Mark was written to the Romans, it's because they fail to understand that Israel sits under the fifth course of judgment. They are under Gentile rule. Mark said he's the Messiah. And he can get the job done because look at what he's saying and what he's doing. Because that little remnant, they're going to say, okay, you said you're the king, can you get the job done? And Mark says, yes, he can. If you look there at Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Again, Mark is not an apostle. But yet he starts how? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is pretty blunt. No sweet talking. He, verse 2, as it is written in the prophets... It's interesting. Mark's blunt. He's all business. He's straight to the point. He, he isn't going to give you a lot of discourse to set things up so that you can understand. He, he doesn't talk a lot in parables. You know, he, he'll mention them. Don't get me wrong. They're going to be there because the information in Mark is, sits in Matthew, Luke, and John, but it's going to be, you know, hit, hit you right in the, between the eyeballs. Here we go. Um, again, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. The servant is the Son of God. And literally what he's going to do here is he's going to demonstrate the sonship service of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to demonstrate himself to be the Son of God by the faithful obedience to going doing what the Father, Hebrews 10, Lo, in the volume of the book, you prepared a body for me, not my will, but thy will, I'm going to go do it. And so he's going to, do, he's going to demonstrate that now in activity. If you look there at verse 1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now watch, as it is written in the where. I'm going to write this over here. So we're going to talk about the gospel... Of, the son, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, so the prophets are going to confirm this. They're going to confirm that he is the Son of God. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. There's Jehovah. Now watch verse 7. Uh, verse 6, and John was clothed with camel's hair. Verse 7, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me. Okay, so now we're going to have John the Baptist confirm it. We're going to have John the Baptist say, The one mightier than I, he's the guy. Verse 11, and there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then we're going to have the Father confirm it. Okay? Now, if you think about that, and if you look at that, we're 11 verses in where it took four chapters in Matthew to get to, another five or six chapters in Luke to do it. John just kind of slims. It's quick. It's boom, boom, boom. You know what Mark says? He's the Son of God. The prophets say he's Jehovah. John the Baptist says he's mightier than I. The Father says he's my beloved son. And guess what? That's who he is. We're moving on. We're not sitting here. 
by the way, if you look at verse 10, and straightway, verse 12, and immediately. You know what straightway means? Immediately. Verse 18, and straightway, verse 20, and straightway, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and straightway, straightway, immediate, no hesitation, all action. It's all action. Actually, I didn't run the computer. I kind of counted through uh, in, in, in one of my Strong's books. It's like a hundred times that word straightway and immediately are used and, and just getting Mark going. By the way, if you look here at chapter 1, look at verse 5. You see the first word? And. Verse 6. And. Verse 7. And. Verse 9, and. Verse 11, and. Verse 12, and. Guess what the big word is? And. Verse 13, and. 2, 1. And again, he entered. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again. Notice, entered again. Chapter 4, verse 1. And he began again to teach. 5, 1. And there came over. 6, 1. And he went out. 7, 1. Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes. And verse 2, and when they saw, chapter 8, verse 1, in those days, multiple, chapter 9, verse 1, and, almost, chapter 10, verse 1, and he arose. Chapter 11, 1, and, chapter 12, verse 1, and he began to speak. 13, 1, and he went out. 14, after two days and so forth. 15, and straightway in the morning, 16, and when almost every chapter's got an and, and it doesn't begin with and, it's real quick right after that. Mark doesn't dwell on anything too long because he's interested only in the activity of what the Lord is doing. He's a servant. Let's get on with it. Let's move. Don't... None of this lollygagging about he comes in dressed in purple and blah, blah. Nope. Boom. Let's go. We're doing it. We're moving. We're moving. We're moving. So when you think about this, it's a move, 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 move. Go, 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 go. So when you come to Mark, we're going to be hoofing it. We're going to be busy. <laughs> we're going to be moving. We're not going to be sitting still. Now, again, as we take it in teaching verse by verse, we won't be, we're not going to do one chapter in one night, okay? I just, just can't do that. But I don't want you to say, wait a minute, why isn't he talking about all the details? Listen, Matthew 13 tells you how to understand the parables. Mark ain't going to do that. He's going to say, there's a parable and gone. Now, parable and gone. Why? Because you have what? Matthew 13 to go teach you the details. Again, Mark is not argumentative. He is pushing forward. Okay? So now, go back here to Mark, and let's talk about who Mark is. Who is this guy? Okay? Because genuinely, generally, it is taught that it, this is John Mark. And I'll be honest with you, it's John Mark who writes this. Okay? But there are some things in this that when you begin to talk about who was Matthew? Matthew was a publican. He was a tax collector. He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government to collect taxes. He's hated. But yet, what does Mark, what does Matthew enjoy? Government, king speech, all of the all of the things that belong to government. So he's a natural to write about the king, isn't he? That's a natural flow. Luke, the beloved physician. It's to Luke who Mary unloads her hearts about the conception and the birth and everything. The humanity of the Lord. Only a doctor could really write about the humanity. That's why while Matthew is, here's what the king says, Luke is, here's what the man, Jesus Christ, felt. Mark is, here's what, here's what the Son of God did. Here's what the king did. By the way, John is uh, the John. He's the that disciple whom Jesus loved. 
lay, he was laying there on the Lord's bosom in, in the Last Supper there. And uh, he's in that upper room. He's the one that gets close to the Lord. He loves the Lord because he knows that the Lord loves him. Mark, Mark's a servant. John Mark, talking about. He, he, he is, he's a servant. He's someone who, who is going to, we'll see it here. He served with Peter, but he also served with Paul. As the transition and the new program gets on board. So when you begin to think about who John Mark is and who, who Mark is, the writer here, and, and again, that's my, this is my personal opinion. If you disagree with it, that's fine. That's your business. You can take it up with the Lord when he deals with you, okay? As I usually say, if you want to be wrong, go ahead. But I get in trouble when I say that. And they, people don't, 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 uh, don't uh, enjoy my sense of humor, I guess. But when you think about Mark, there are a couple things that we have to think about. Uh, come over to John chapter 5. <clears throat> when you think about tradition, okay, uh, the beginning there, Schofield's note, the writer of the second gospel, Mark, called also John, was the son of one of the New Testament's Marys and nephew of Barnabas. He was an associate of the apostles and is mentioned in the writings of Paul and Luke. Well, that's what tradition says, okay? Actually, John Mark was the son of Barnabas. He wasn't the nephew. He was actually Paul's nephew. We'll see that in just a minute here as we go through us. So you gotta, when, you, when it comes to tradition, you have to be very careful with it. Now, it doesn't mean... You know, tradition tells us that Matthew wrote Matthew, and Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John, and Mark wrote Mark. But you know there's no verse that says that Matthew wrote Matthew. There's no verse that says Mark writes Mark. There are verses that get pretty close to Luke writing Luke and John writing John, but there are no absolutes. That's, but tradition says they did. Now, again, there's no reason not to trust tradition, okay? Uh, I, think, I, th I think about that. We are so quick to kick tradition out because it's tradition and it's the church's fathers and blah, blah, blah. And yet, really, you shouldn't do that until you, you've got some evidence to do that. Now, when it comes to tradition and dating when the books are written, now you can kick tradition out a little bit because we have verses that help with that. If Mark didn't write Mark, okay, that's fine. But it does matter when it was written. That's more important, okay? Tradition, you just got to be careful with it. I, wouldn't, I don't trust tradition at all when it comes to dating the books at all. Here's an illustration. Look at John 5 and verse number 2. Well, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of, of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, in tradition, John is supposedly to have been writing anywhere from 90 to 100 A.D. Schofield's note says the date of John's gospel falls between A.D. 85 and 90, probably the latter. That's tradition. The problem is, what does 5.2 demonstrate? That the tradition is wrong. Because what he says, now there is at Jerusalem a pool. We know from history that in 70 A.D., Titus wiped out Jerusalem. He wiped out the pool. So if John is writing later, 90 to 100 A.D., he wouldn't say there is at Jerusalem. He would have said what? There was. He doesn't say that. So when you come to, and by the way, that is clear as clear can be. The other verse for me is over there in Galatians 1, when Paul says, if an angel speaks to you from heaven 
And the only place in Scripture that I have found where an angel would talk to a Gentile is in Revelation 14. So that means when Paul wrote Galatians, he had the book of the Revelation in front of him to make that reference to, hey, if you're in time past under another gospel, Christ, earthly ministry, or if you're out here in the future stuff, you're in the wrong place. You've been removed from the gospel of the grace of God. Okay, do you follow that? I, so, but John 5, 2 is clear. If John had written late, then it would have said there was at Jerusalem. No, it doesn't say that there is. The other reason, come over with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, is that they say about Mark, is that Mark, and again, this is tradition, okay? Tradition says that Mark had left Jerusalem and Palestine and had gone down into Alexandria, started a church and became a bishop in North Africa. Okay? Now, there's a glaring problem with that. That's, and that's Galatians 2 verse 9, where Paul says, I'm going to go to the heathen, all the unsaved world out there. Peter says, we're going to go to the circumcision, that little flock, Mark, John Mark, is a member of that little flock. He would have never gone down to start the church and do all this other. He would have, did some, he would have done something else. Okay? So the question now becomes, look at 1 Peter 4, becomes about the issue here about John Mark and who he is. And the fact is, is that he's a servant. He's a worker. And he's going to work here with uh, Peter. If you look there at 1 Peter 4, uh, by the way, the context of 1 Peter, is, and if you look there at chapter 1, just so you get it in your thinking, 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The strangers there, that's Israel, that's the Jews, and what are they? They're scattered. That's the condition of the little flock that he's writing to here is that they are scattered. Chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that he should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a description of the little flock. That's who they are. They're not, they're, that's not Gentiles. Actually, if you look down at verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. There's the Gentiles. Now, we didn't keep reading there, but so this is not Gentile. This is, this is the little flock, chapter 4, verse 7. But the end of things, the end of all things is at hand. Well, if it's the end of all things, where are we? We're now over getting to the tribulation, 70th week. We're getting to the end. Now watch this carefully. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things, have fervent charity among who? Doesn't say among the Gentiles. He says among yourselves, little flock, believing remnant. For charity shall cover the multitude of sin. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received a gift, even so ministering the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter is exhorting that little flock to have charity among yourselves and to, and to be about one anothering. He's, he's out there going to the circumcision, and he's, he is working out there amongst and the interruptions in play. He knows it. He's already had the conference in Acts 15, the Galatians 2 agreement. Peter is out amongst the circumcision. And he, 2 Peter 3, he's clear as a, as a nose on your face that he knows Paul. The, God's doing what Paul, that ministry. And we're, in, we're, we're on pause and we're to be ready when, the, when that long suffering is over. We're going to be right back in the hot seat and let's get ready. He's, there's no doubt in Peter's mind what's going on. Now look in chapter 5. Of 1 Peter. And look who's with him. Verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth 
Marcus, my son. There's, there's Mark. Now, notice the church that is at Babylon. Well, what's going on in Babylon? These are circumcision believers. He's talking to 1-1, chapter 1, verse 1. That scattered group that he lists in 1-1, there's a little flock church in Babylon. Well, when did that happen? Six, uh, I just, 606 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem over. Then they're under 70 years over there under Babylonian captivity. And then when Cyrus comes in, he says, you guys can go back and build Jerusalem back, but not everybody went back. Only a small group went back. So you've got a group of believers that have been there since Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I don't know if you ever wondered where the wise men understood the scripture. So you got, you got Jewish believers in Babylon this whole time. And guess who's over there with, guess who is saluting them? Marcus, my son. That's who's there. And he says, greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. By the way, notice Peter, Mark is with Peter in Babylon. They're saluting the little flock. He's not in North Africa. But he calls, Peter calls him my son. Because he worked with Peter. Paul calls Timothy, my son in the faith. Not child, not offspring, but my son. Then later on, Paul talks about Peter, how he f labored with me, and, and he, he's uh, going to come in and tell you my, case, my state, and how I'm doing, and how he worked intricately. So you've got a spiritual father with the spiritual son. So you have a very, very close relationship here. It's Paul with Timothy, it's Philippians 2 over there where he labored with Paul. Again, so he's not talking about just a son, but rather he's talking about a faithful labor. He's talking about a full-grown participant in the work of the ministry. And Mark was laboring with Peter. Evidently, he grew up under Peter's influence and he, he, he grew up under Peter's ministry. Now, Justin Martyr, in, in 150 A.D., quoting Mark, said, called Mark the memoirs of Peter. Because, so Peter has a great influence here. Uh, Eusebius said that the book of Mark was written under the influence and eye of Peter. Jerome calls the book The Interpretation of Peter. Now, underst now, understandably, those are statements because Mark worked and functioned closely with Peter. He understood Peter's thinking. Now, who wrote, who wrote Mark? The Holy Spirit did. But he's using a guy, Mark, John Mark, who has an idea and an understanding of what it is to be a servant. Okay? Now, come to Colossians 4, and we're going to get Colossians 4 and Acts 4. We'll do Colossians 4. Thinking about Mark, first, he works with Peter, labors with him, travails with him, working with him, going and doing but now in Colossians 4, I mean, if you think about this, here you have him working with Peter, doing, they have the Galatians 2 meeting, and now Mark says, well, you're here, you're good, now I'm going to come over here and I'm going to work with Paul. And I'm going to labor with Paul. Now look at Colossians 4, starting verse 10, and watch how this develops out here. Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he came unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision. 
These only are my fellow workers uh, unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort to you. So Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas, Jesus, who's called Justice, who are they? They're circumcision believers. They belong in the little flock, but what are they doing? They're working with Paul. They've seen the information. They know where God's at, and they're going and doing that. They're helping Paul. But notice who Mark is. He's sister, son to Barnabas. Now, by the way, the new Bibles change that to cousin. Because what do the Roman Catholics do to the, to, to the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ? Cousins. So the new Bibles follow that thought, thought process. So Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. Marcus is Barnabas's son. Okay? Now, just kind of think about this. And again, it, I, the sister in the verse, is Paul's sister. So Barnabas and Paul are brother-in-laws. Okay? Now, if you think about this, and again, this is just how I see it. You can agree to disagree. Again, you can be wrong, but that's okay. Come back with me to Acts 23. You can let Colossians go. Just notice something here, very interesting here. Mark become if Mark is Barnabas's son and Barnabas and Paul are brother-in-laws then Mark is a nephew to Paul Paul's uncle Paul okay now watch Acts 23 verse 16 and when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait he went and entered into the castle and told Paul Paul's what sister's son Colossians 4, sister's son to Barnabas. Well, if the sister's son came and told Paul, that was his nephew. Mark comes and warns Paul of what's going to happen. They're coming to get you. They're coming to kill you. You need to run. You need to get out. So Paul and Barnabas are brother-in-laws, and John Mark is Paul's nephew. Now, again, if you... (laughs) If that's the case, could you imagine the family get together over Passover? <laughs> and how, I mean, here's, here, think about prior to Acts 9, here is Paul, Saul of Tarsus, out wreaking havoc on the very beliefs of Barnabas and John Mark. Now come back with me to Acts chapter 4. You gotta think this stuff through sometime. That that's honestly what makes Bible study fun, because you and and really you have to become a detective. I know what tradition says, and you can blow it out your ear. Okay, when you get into this and you start looking at this, you go, "Wow, look at that." Acts 15. Remember the blow up between Barnabas and Paul was over who? John Mark. That was a family squabble. Okay, but look at Acts 4. Verse 36, Acts 4, 36. And Joseph, who by the uh, apostles were a surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now there's Barnabas, and who is Barnabas? He's a Levite. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's the same listing that Paul gives in Philippians 3 over there. See, these guys don't get removed from Israel's religion at all. One, though, Barnabas is now under whose authority, though? Peter. Saul of Tarsus is down at the chief priests in Gamaliel and those guys. Barnabas is a part of the little flock. John Mark, son, he's a member of the little flock, the circumcision believer. Now, they are wealthy, by the way. He's got land to sell. He's a Levite. But he's of the country of Cyprus. Don't forget that. Come over to chapter 12 of Acts. Chapter 12. 
In chapter 12 of Acts, Peter's arrested. He's thrown in jail. Verse 7, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly, and chains fell off from his hands. And off Peter set, Acts 12, 7. Peter let him, the angel comes in, kicks Peter up, says, wake up, get up, let's go. Off they go, so they go running. Verse 11, and when Peter was come to himself, I mean, could you imagine, finally, what what just happened here, (laughs) you know? He said, "Now, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing... He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So this would be Barnabas' wife. This would be Paul's sister. Where many were gathered together praying. Well, many gathered together would indicate not a small house, but a big house, wealthy house. So John Mark is raised in a wealthy family, but he's also raised in a faithful Jewish Levite household that have been converted under Peter's ministry from Pentecost. Acts 4, what we just read in Acts 4, where Barnabas selling that, that is just days removed from the day of Pentecost. It's not years and months and seasons. It's just days. So John Mark comes out of the kingdom church. Now, you're in Acts 12. Drop down to verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Paul Paul and Barnabas have been up to Jerusalem They've been up there doing, taking care of the poor saints and the collection and everything. Now they come back and they're going to take John Mark, 13.1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, uh, Simeon that was called Niger. And then they're going to be separated, verse 2 there. The Holy Ghost says, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And he begins that first apostolic journey. And who goes with them? Verse 4. So they, uh, they, John Mark's with them, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into uh, Selica. And from from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So they're going home. They're going by Barnabas' hometown. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John to their ministry. So they go home, they go back to the hometown. Barnabas is, again, he's from Cyprus, chapter 4, and John Mark is there with them. Verse 5, he joins them. Now, verse 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Papos, they came to Perga, in Pamphylia, and John departed from them, uh, returned to Jerusalem. John Mark leaves them. He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes home is what he's going to do, okay? He, He has had it. He doesn't like the shipwrecked stuff. He's going home, okay? Spurgeon, I think it was Spurgeon, wrote a, had a sermon about, uh, the quitter that came back, talking about John Mark, because he's going to come back. They go. Dad and uncle, there's Barnabas and Paul. They go on. He goes back. Acts 15. Look over there at Acts 15. We got the meeting there in Jerusalem. Acts 15, verse 36. And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take them with them, John, whose same surname was Mark, and Paul thought not good to take him. And so you have a big family blow up. Now watch verse 39. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark, and they sailed unto Cyprus. They went home. They didn't continue out into the ministry doing. They went home. And the reason that they go home 
is because Galatians 2, Acts 15, the right hand of fellowship, they were no longer going to be a part of Paul's ministry out here. They were going home back to the circumcision believers and ministering there. And what happens then is you no longer see a mention of Barnabas. And outside of Colossians 4, do you see John Mark until you come to the very end in 2 Timothy 4. So go to 2 Timothy 4. <clears throat> they are, there's no longer Barnabas and Paul, the, the great team, Batman and Robin, none of that. The only other place that you see John Mark mentioned is Colossians 4. And by the way, that, that's written after the book of Acts is over. And then yet here in 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, only Luke is with thee. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Yet there we find Mark, the servant, at the end of, the, at the end of Paul's day, Paul's writing. He's the quitter who came back. But yet Mark understood what it was to serve and to fail and to be redeemed and to go back to serving. He understood that. By the way, guess what the Lord Jesus Christ, same thing, knows what it is to serve, to fail, to redeem Paul the same way. So Mark, when you come back to Mark, time's up <laughs> for the hours way up. Mark, in my humble opinion... Mark wrote Mark because, actually, the Holy Spirit writes Mark through Mark, but he's using that mentality of the servant and the worker and the doer, okay? And John Mark is very valuable to the work of the ministry, whether it's Peter or whether it was Paul. And Mark does contain a lot of Peter thinking. That's fine. It's no big deal because it's really the Holy Spirit writing it and doing it. Now, you can take the sister's son of Barnabas if you want to run with that and say, no, that's not da-da-da-da-da. That's fine. I don't, it's not gonna, we're not going to end the you know, studying because of that. But it is, it, it, that just gives you another way of thinking about it, I would hope. Okay? So as we come into Mark, now next week we're going to do one more little intro to it because there's some things going on in Mark 1, 2, and 3 and then in Mark 16 that we need to address before we get into it, okay? So that's kind of an introduction to Mark. Mark's going to look at the servant, and he's going to say, the king is the king because look at what the king is doing. And there we go, okay? All right, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for the look here into the suffering servant's mindset as we introduce the book. And as we get to thinking about the activity of the Lord, we would do so with our hearts open and our ears open, and we would just enjoy the message here. In your name we pray. Amen.